If you are ready to change the way people experience the transition to parenthood, you've come to the right place. On this podcast, we interview postpartum professionals, academics and researchers, as well as parents with unique perspectives on postpartum. Whether you've been working with new families for decades or are brand new to postpartum care, we'd love you to join us. I'm your host, Julia Jones. Hello and welcome to Newborn Mothers Podcast. Today I'm interviewing Dwan, who I came across on Facebook many months ago um, when I was experiencing the Australian bushfires and a lot of people that I was talking to were very concerned about the impact of smoke on their pregnancy, um, on breastfeeding, on their children. Um, and Dwan is, is uh, well, you're an environmental epidem- epidemiologist. <laughs> it's a long word, yeah. So I'm an environmental epidemiologist, epidemiologist. At, the child, <laughs> yeah, at the Child Health Research Centre at the University of Queensland. Excellent. So I invited Dwan on because I really am interested and I know a lot of the mums I talk to are very concerned about the impact of climate change on, on children, both on pregnancy and, and breastfeeding those early days, but also actually what are the lifelong impacts. And since we're increasingly seeing more likelihood, like that bushfire season isn't the only time that's going to happen. Um, there's extended and, and increased risks of droughts and also pandemics, which we're also experiencing this year. Um, so I thought it was really important to have someone who has done some research in this area, who understands these things and who can maybe explain to us a little bit both the risks um, but also what we can actually do, um, you know, about this in our own families as well. So, Duan, do you want to introduce yourself and, and let us know how you got involved in this area? Absolutely. Okay, so my name is Dr. Duan Bilsons. Um, as I said earlier, I'm an environmental epidemiologist at the Child Health Research Centre at the University of Queensland, and I'm also associated with the World Health Organisation Collaborating Centre for Children's Health and Environment. Um, I became interested in this issue when I did my public health master's and I did a subject called environmental health and I just found it really brought together all my personal beliefs. I have a strong connection to the environment. I have a lovely home garden. I really believe in being a part of nature and looking after nature. I also have young children myself. And so it just really helped me bring together my passion for the environment and nature, um, my passion for children, as well as my passion for health. And so that's how I kind of stumbled into this field, really, through exposure, through a subject. Um, In the end, I went on to do my PhD um, in the topic of children's environmental health. And now I've just started a postdoc research position um, with the Children's Health Research Centre. Yeah, so... (laughs) oh no yes oh you you go were you going to say something else no I was just going to say it is a really important topic to think about um, climate change and children's health and there's a couple of reasons for this the first is that children are uniquely vulnerable to the impacts of any environmental exposure and that includes um, from climate change so children breathe more air, they ingest more food per kilogram of body weight than adults do. Um, they have a higher tendency to absorb um, environmental chemicals from food or water or air that they breathe. And it's just the nature of their physiology, of their growing bodies. They need to take on more of everything 
hopefully it's good things like nutrients, but it can also be the negative things like environmental exposures. Um, and so as we see our climate change, we will see that children are uniquely vulnerable to the new hazards that are presented through the changing climate. But they also have to live longer with any health impacts. So um, the fetal origin of health and disease and the life course epidemiology concepts are basically saying that any health shocks that occur through gestation or the early periods of a child life will add up to long-term health consequences. And there's some really great studies on this that show that children who are born low birth weight go on to become adults who tend to have a lower socioeconomic status. They have a higher risk for chronic disease like cancer and cardiovascular disease. And they tend to um, earn less money and achieve less in education, even if they came from a moderately wealthy socioeconomic background. So this isn't children who started um, low socioeconomic status. They actually slipped down just through being born low birth weight. And it's just a really um, good example that came out of, um, what do you call it, you know, like Switzerland and the Netherlands, that type of region, showing this life course epidemiology in action. So that's really fascinating and important and that we should all be advocating for better care for, for families. But it's also quite terrifying for people who are in Australia and who have just had babies breastfeeding pregnancy in the last few months um, you know I know I was getting a lot of emails and questions um, over that bushfire season from people who are very concerned and not sure what they should do and how they could mitigate those risks so do you have anything kind of reassuring for those people who it's too late to stop it from happening so you know what do you do next Okay, I've got a few things that I'd like to say on that. So probably the first one is that epidemiology is a field of public health and public health is concerned with small exposures that are important across the population but aren't normally as important at an individual level. So as an example from my own work, I look at green space exposures and birth weight in children. And from a population level, we can see that around 5% of babies are born low birth weight because they're exposed to lower levels of green space. And improving the amount of green space in the area where the mother lives would it remove around 5% of low birth weight cases in Queensland. So that's really huge when looked at a population level. But on an individual level, moving from an area that had 20% of trees covering the suburb to an area with 60% of trees would only gain 20 grams of birth weight. So on an individual level, that's a really, really small shift. So the first thing to remember when talking about any epidemiological study results is that we're talking big scale population measures and that individuals don't need to be overly concerned about those. This is really a role for health systems and governments to make changes to protect whole population health and not for individuals to become overly concerned. Um, the second is that we do live in a country with great healthcare system and we have lots of opportunities to try and overcome health shocks. So as long as we're aware of what's happening and we can take a little bit of personal action and look after our health, we really don't need to be overly concerned that, you know, an exposure such as breathing a lot of bushfire smoke for a young infant or um, young child through the Australian bushfire season of 2018, 2019, that's not going to lead to... Um, 
a catastrophic health injury that can't be overcome. So you might see a little bit of increased wheeze. You might see um, a few deficits in growth or something over the short period of time, but you will be able to catch those up on the longer term. So we keep up our good nutrition. We keep up play for children, which is so important for overcoming so many different problems that they may be exposed to in childhood. And we take these positive steps um, and you will find that your children will recover from that health insult. Um, and then lastly, that stress, especially for parents, is more harmful often than environmental exposures in a country like Australia. So these are great things to be aware of, but not things to be so stressed and bogged down in that it's actually affecting your function and the way that you're feeling. So um, I think it's really easy. And, you know, I certainly sometimes read papers and feel really quite scared of the future that's coming for us. But that fear is not healthy for me and it's not healthy for my children. And it stops me from taking small actions that could improve the situation. So I would say to remember, yeah, these are population level exposures. The individuals don't need to be quite as concerned. We have a great health system. We have a great education system here in Australia that can help to make up deficits. And yeah, to not be too stressed. Try and, yeah. try and get positive action. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point. I, I really love, um, I'm sure you know it, but the podcast called Optimism and uh, Outrage and Optimism. And she talks a lot about choosing hope, um, not because there's a lot to be hopeful for, but because it's the most, um, the most beneficial thing that we can do, you know, like the yeah. best thing we can do for ourselves and our families is to just, you know, even in the face of difficult times, even when there's not a lot of evidence for it, we still must choose to be hopeful because that stress is not useful to anyone. No, it's a good lesson for our children as well to see us, you know, even in the face of things that worry us to dust ourselves off and pick ourselves up and keep going and, and not let that stress wear us down. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple more things. Um, one of them is really so what people can do who are, you know, potentially going to experience um, bushfires or other, you know, climate impacts in the future. Um, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit now. Sure. So what I might start with before what we can do is maybe just give you a quick rundown on what we, what sort of health effects we expect yes, to see that, from that was the climate. other thing. So we can do it in that order. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um, climate change is um, expected to have quite a diverse range of health effects. Um, and most of these affect children and adults, but children a little bit more frequently. So um, probably one of the first and most well-known is the increased risk to health from natural disasters. So things like we do expect to see more drought. We expect to see higher temperatures and more heat stress. We expect to see more um, severe rainfall events like cyclones, flooding, and then as well as things like the bushfires, which we just saw in action, you know, only a few months ago. It feels like a lifetime ago now with coronavirus, but it was really only a couple of months ago that these bushfires were on the forefront of the Australian consciousness. Um, heat stress for children is a really big one. We know quite a lot about heat stress, but I don't think people really appreciate how much morbidity and mortality, so sickness and death, can be attributed to high temperatures. So this is a case of um, being really aware when heat waves are coming and making a plan for your family of how you're going to approach it. And it might be um, you get to the park really early in the morning. So if you're used to getting up in the morning and pottering around the house and then heading out to the park at 10 o'clock, if you know it's an active heat wave, it might be a simple 
simple as, okay, kids, straight out of jammies and we'll have breakfast in, in the park today and get down to the park at 7 o'clock in the morning. Or using things like fill up the bath and throw some toys in there and let the children spend the heat of the day splashing around in the bath like it's a little swimming pool. Not everybody has access to swimming pools, both public or in their own backyards. Um, we're certainly in that situation. And so we use the bath quite a lot, just a little bit of water and some toys and the kids love it. Um, so it's just, again, not being stressed about these increasing temperatures, but being thinking about the ways that we can incorporate um, cooling down strategies. And I really like strategies like a little bit of water in the bathtub or, you know, some cold compresses or some fans and a movie day in the heat of the day, because I think we need to be really mindful about our use of air conditioning and um, ways of cooling that are quite energy intensive because that's just feeding further into this cycle of climate change. So the other good thing is as well as these low tech options not generating as much carbon, they're also cheap and affordable and everybody can do them. Um, another one is for children, another risk of climate change that is probably not focused on quite as much is the increased risk of infectious disease. So we know as temperatures increase, we'll see um, an increased range of vectors. And what that means in plain language is at the moment, um, a good example is dengue fever. So we do have dengue fever in Australia, but it's really limited to the top of Queensland. But as the climate warms up and temperatures get higher, we'll find that those dengue carrying mosquitoes will actually be able to travel further and further down the Queensland coast. And so that means people who were never previously at risk of these diseases may now be at risk. So we'll expect to see tick range change. We'll expect to see mosquito range change. And then just things like some waterborne illnesses, algae blooms, those types of things that are quite rare at the moment will become more common. Um, and again, this is just about not getting terrified, but what strategies can we use? There is some lovely natural mosquito repellents out there. And if you're going bushwalking, don't be scared to use a chemical-based mosquito repellent. It's certainly better than them being bitten by ticks or mosquitoes. Um, and so I think sometimes people get really caught up. I mean, I'm my original um, undergraduate degree was naturopathy. So I'm really passionate about natural medicine, but I'm also really aware from my public health role that um, sometimes it's better just to get out the air guard and protect the kids um, if necessary. And just yes. things like making sure that there's no water hanging around in your backyard, just really simple things that we can do. Bushwalk wearing, you know, leggings, you can buy them so cheap from Kmart, just some long leggings and some long sleeve shirts and things like this can be really sensible and easy ways to offset the risk of infectious disease. Um, and one of the ones that really interests me again, because it brings together my background with my current work is the decrease in nutritional security. So there's a big focus on crops will fail, but it's even if crops don't fail, there will be a change on our nutritional status in food. So we know that as temperatures get higher and as carbon dioxide in the air increases, that crops produce less essential nutrients like zinc. They also have changed fatty acid profiles and they have changed protein profiles. So all of a sudden, these plants may still be growing. And in fact, under a high carbon atmosphere, they may be growing greener and leafier than ever. But we're starting to see a changed nutritional profile. And that's just as concerning to us in public health as crops outright failing. Because in a country like Australia, we're unlikely for, for a while anyway to see widespread um, 
nutritional deficiencies from not having enough to eat. But what we might start to see is these subtle deficiencies from plants changing. Um, and this, again, we can take some really common steps, go to farmers markets, try to buy from people who are growing organically, teach the kids how to garden and stick a cherry tomato and some spinach and some things into your own backyard. And we can start to look at these innovative and different ways of sourcing our food that might actually help to improve our food security as well. Are you listening to this awesome interview with a postpartum professional and thinking that this might be your calling in life too? Do you believe postpartum care could be a respected, valued and well-paid profession but feel frustrated and don't know where to start? Newborn Mothers Collective is online worldwide postpartum training and professional development with over a thousand students from 40 different countries around the world. We value human rights, scientific evidence and diversity and we'd love you to join us at newbornmothers.com. I love it. Thank you. So that's that's so comprehensive. I really appreciate that and I love hearing that. And I think you're, I love your balanced approach because I agree a lot of people are very worried about the impact of, you know, like you were saying about the chemical mosquito repellents. But, you know, if anyone's ever lived in a country where dengue fever or malaria or any of those diseases are really prevalent, then the thought of using a little bit of DEET on your skin becomes, you know, obsolete. You know, the risk Absolutely. of that is so much lower. So it's about really being aware of those risks but also balancing them out in a sort of sensible way and um, and not becoming too stressed and overwhelmed i've been thinking a lot during this pandemic about how it's very difficult for us to be thinking well and making good decisions under this level of stress and i'm noticing a lot of people are um getting you know so so stressed and so disordered in their thinking that there's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of really unhealthy and um, unhelpful sort of ideas and things floating around that people are starting to cling to. So I, I really appreciate you being able to, from both that, you know, holistic and also that scientific background, provide such balanced information. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else? We've talked about heat. We've talked about infectious diseases, nutrition. We've talked a little bit about smoke and we can... Um, talk about that again i'm also just before we finish up too a little bit interested too in your research on green space you know i've talked to you a little bit about that but we weren't recording but i thought that was really really interesting because from my perspective you know and it sounds a little bit woo woo but i always think that the health and fertility of the earth and the way that we care for the earth is going to be reflected in the health and fertility of humans um you know and that, that ultimately we're all connected but then when when you can present this kind of data that literally demonstrates this exactly i think it's really um beautiful <laughs> yeah look i love green space i'm really really passionate about this field because there's just nothing nicer than going down to the park and your kids are running around and you're watching the sky and you know the trees are dappling the sunset as sunlight and it's just beautiful and from a um, health perspective, there's this new and emerging body of research, and it's really all within the last decade of how green spaces and trees can actually improve human health. And there's a number of mechanisms that are proposed for it. So some of it is just the presence of green spaces makes us more likely to get out and exercise and enjoy them. Um, but there's also um, mental benefits. So they've done studies that even just looking at green spaces actually reduces cortisol and improves feelings of well-being. It um, improves what's called our attention restoration, which is our ability to be relaxed 
but um, attentive on a particular topic. Um, there's evidence to suggest that, um, emerging evidence, but there's evidence to suggest that exposure to green spaces improves the human microbiome. And we know that microbiome research at the moment is just exploding and is linked to pretty much every aspect of human health and well-being. Um, and so there's this evidence that as we spend time in green spaces, even if they're just suburban backyards, then we can actually improve the human microbiome through that exposure. But my particular interest was looking at how maternal exposure to green spaces in the areas where they live. So um, the technical term is locality, but you can just think of it as your suburb that you live in. Um, the, so how maternal exposure actually influences birth outcomes. And I looked specifically at birth weight um, because it was just the most available um, data that was uh, there for me to use in Queensland. And so we looked at a few different, we used the Royal Week, really, I looked at <laughs> I looked at a few different measures of green space. Um, so the main one that I used was just called, um, it's called the fractional cover for anyone who's interested. It's a type of NDVI measure. Um, in plain terms, what that says is any measure of greenness in the maternal suburb. So, um, you know, grass is just as equal as shrubs and trees. And what we wanted to know was as the amount of this greenness went up in the area where a pregnant woman lived, what happened with her baby's birth weight. And we found that as it continued to increase, so the more green trees and green grass and greenness in the mother's suburb, the higher the birth weights were. So it was quite, it was a statistically significant and it was quite significant at a population level. But probably of more interest to us was that we also had data on dry and dead vegetation and bare earth. And this is particularly interesting because as the climate changes and we experience more drought, we will see prolonged periods where we have um, tree and vegetation die off. So um, I'm sure everyone can remember just before the bushfires we had in Queensland, the wettest winter, um, sorry, the driest winter that we had had in a really long time. And everybody's backyards were dead. You would go to the local park. There was lots of leaf fall from trees that are typically evergreen, like the gums and things. And so that dry and dead leaf fall all is captured in this dry and dead vegetation. And then lots and lots of bare earth because, of course, as the vegetation dies off and people run over it, it eventually turns to bare earth. And what we actually found in my study was that as we had higher levels of bare earth and dry and dead vegetation, we actually had lower birth weights. And the magnitude of effect was higher than the green space. So having more dry and dead vegetation had a more negative effect on a baby's birth weight compared to if you had more green space in the area. So this was a really, really interesting finding. Um, first of all, nobody had ever looked at it before, so it was really interesting to see such a strong effect um, in a new research area. But it was particularly of interest to us because of climate change, because we expect to see these things more often. And it really shows that the quality of the environment that you live amongst really does have an impact on your baby's health and well-being. And you're talking about this at quite a local level. So what was the data? I mean, are you looking at at a city level or literally at like a postcode level? No, at a, at a um, locality level, which is a little bit smaller than suburb. So um, it's, it is essentially suburbs, but some So it's suburbs... where you'd walk your dog, the playgrounds that you'd play at. It's like your immediate Absolutely. Yeah, area. it is your immediate area where your kids go to school, the whole lot. Yeah, so we so, should all, yeah, we should all be campaigning to our local governments and our kind of neighbourhood groups and be doing a bit more tree planting and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'm a strong believer in, in that, in talking to our governments and saying, 
how important it is, especially as we see in inner urban areas, more and more blocks, big blocks being subdivided to make room for more houses. And the biggest loss in Brisbane anyway, the biggest loss of biodiversity is not actually encroaching into old forest land. It's the subdivision of big, um, big suburban blocks. So when they subdivide those blocks, they clear all the trees. And sometimes you might have two, three, you might even have four or five trees that were cleared and they tend not to get replaced because the blocks get subdivided to quite a low level. And so advocating for um, stronger standards around removing trees from existing blocks and asking governments and local councils to plant more street trees is a really important way to show to governments that this is an issue that we're all involved in. Yeah, and there are lots of local governments, just for people listening and wondering, you know, what difference does it make? But there's a lot of local governments who do have really good policies around these sorts of things. I know the city where I live, I can't remember exactly what the numbers are, but any time they do have to remove a large tree, they, um, you know, have a pledge that they're going to plant 20 more or something like that, you know. So there are simple policies that people um, can ask their local governments to put in place, um, as well as reconsidering whether you need to remove that tree in the first place, you know. So, yeah, it's really important, I think, to know that you can make a difference, particularly at that local government level that feels like a lot more accessible level of change doesn't it yeah definitely and I mean we they are employed by us to represent our interests so while it does sometimes feel like oh why do they care but that's their job it's their job to listen to us and to um, represent all of our voices in the parliaments so definitely and, reach out and, and tell them how you feel yeah and like you said because this is new research like I'm thinking I know that there are definitely you know from my own work with with mums and with babies I know that there are locations that have big problems with low birth weight there are definitely very you know specific places in Australia that this is a real problem and if we could go to them and say look there's um one really simple cheap thing that you can do that won't only increase birth rates but will also increase all these other things the microbiome the attention restoration you know like it's a pretty compelling thing to be able to say Absolutely. And while we wait for governments to catch up with the research, we can take individual action by actively visiting these spaces. So, or trying to make your own backyard if you're lucky enough to have a nice suburban backyard, plant some trees, plant some Australian natives in there, spend more time in the garden, get the kids to the local park, do some bushwalking. It doesn't, you don't have to go out to Lamington or somewhere really far away to bushwalk. You can just find a little you know, urban refuge of remnant forest somewhere close to you and get the kids out there. So you don't, if you're living in an area that's a bit of a um, desert in terms of green space, jump in the car if you have access to a car and get out and visit some of these areas and you'll still start to get those benefits. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask you about the air quality as well because I know um, people in Australia are very aware now, well, probably for the first time, but of the impact of smoke inhalation. I think this bushfire season was the first time we saw such a large population of Australia being directly impacted by smoke. Um, and in Australia, air pollution isn't such a big problem, but globally I know that air pollution is a much bigger problem than, than direct smoke inhalation. So can you talk a little bit about how we can mitigate those risks as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to remember that just because Australia has reasonably good air quality, we still do have levels of air pollution that we're exposed to. And more and more, the evidence is suggesting that any level of exposure to air pollution is harmful. And there is quite a good um, body of evidence now to suggest that um, babies who are exposed to higher levels of air pollution are more likely to be born low birth weight, they're more likely to be preterm, and then young children exposed to um, higher levels of air pollution are more likely to have impacts on their lung development that can follow them through to adulthood. So wherever your lungs have developed to at age four is a really strong indicator of what your lung function will be like into adulthood and your risk of chronic obstructive um, pulmonary diseases. So it I'm is gonna, really important I'm to remember. Pause you there because my dad grew up in a coal mining town in, in England and it was one of the worst polluted places in England and he had a lot of time off school in his childhood because he had chronic lung problems, respiratory problems. Anyway, he's now in his 70s and it still is a problem for him even though they did make changes in that particular town and the air pollution came down. But, you know, 70 years later he still has a lot of problems with um, his respiratory um, system. So, you know, th these are things that I'm sure people have living examples of in their, in their lives. So it's, it is really important to take seriously and think about that in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. And the bushfires really terrified us because it was the first time many Australians were exposed to that really high volume of smoke. Um, mostly the air pollutant present, it's, it's a combination of air pollutants present in bushfire smoke, but the largest one is PM 2.5. And it is one of the ones that we have the best evidence to suggest is linked to health effects in babies. Um, it's something we need to take seriously and we will expect to see more bushfire events and so therefore we will expect to have more exposure to high levels of pollution as short-lived as it may be during these bushfire events. Um, it's also something to be mindful of but probably again try not to be too terrified of. Um, there's a couple of options you can monitor live air quality um, Basically, if you just Google the name of the city that you're in, so I'm Brisbane, so Brisbane Live Air Quality, you will normally be able to find almost any city of the world um, uh, air quality index that's, you know, if it's not exactly live, it might be an hour delayed or 24-hour um, period delayed. And you can actually check what the air quality is in the area where, they, where you're living. And this can help you to make some decisions about how you're going to live your life on that day or for the next 24-hour period. So it might be things like on really high air pollution days, you might choose to shut all your windows. And if it was during a bushfire, you might also want to put some towels underneath the doors and things to stop the air coming in. And as the air quality improves, remember to air your house out as well, because even when we're closing the windows and doors... Oh, sorry about <laughs> we that. Do that's okay. We do get this leakiness through the house where the air pollutants will come in. And it's just about changing habits. So um, I'm part of quite a few running groups and people were like, I don't care about the bushfires. I'm going out running. And a few people were like, no, you can't do that. In high bushfire smoke days, it is about keeping the kids indoors, keeping yourself indoors, finding different ways to exercise and connect with people. And I think coronavirus has really forced us to get innovative in the way that we do all of these things so we can borrow some of the lessons that we've learned about maybe video conferencing our friends rather than going out for that dinner that we were going to go out to in a high smoke time or you know coming up with obstacle courses around the house and scavenger hunts to keep the kids occupied and active and doing things they're all the sorts of things that we can do during a bushfire crisis as well. Yeah, I was quite shocked by that was my first experience of of like real high smoke situation and um we did get quite sick we all felt nauseous my son vomited my um 
father-in-law has asthma, so he was quite affected, but we didn't know what to do about it. And I was quite like, I felt a little bit let down because we usually have very good public health systems in, in Australia. There was a lot of warnings about, you know, road closures and evacuations and that kind of thing, but there was, it was difficult to find out how much smoke is too much smoke and what do you do about it if there is? And I think that point you made earlier about the running groups, I didn't know that actually walking outside is bad enough, but exercising outside, you're actually breathing a lot more air and therefore exposing yourself to a lot more of the um, air pollution. So actually going for a run is the worst thing you can possibly do in a high smoke um, situation. But we don't have that general level of education and knowledge amongst the Australian public right now. No, well, and we don't because our air quality is pretty good. So these have traditionally been quite rare events for us as Australians. Um, the general public advice in high bush fire haze or any high air pollution day is to try and stay indoors with the windows and doors shut where possible. Um, it's to dust more frequently around your house. So some of the exposure is that as it comes in, the dust sits there. And then of course, as we stir it up through our daily living, we're constantly being re-exposed to it. So probably to make sure you're doing a good dust every day with a wet cloth. Um, it's for identifying people who are more vulnerable. So people who do have asthma, elderly people with heart, existing heart and lung conditions, young children, um, those types of people, and making sure that you have any medications that are necessary on hand and that you're closely monitoring those people. So, you know, if you don't live with your old, elderly parents, but you know that they have an existing heart condition, checking in on them regularly, making sure that they've got all the help they need and keeping their windows shut and getting their groceries. Um, and so it's just those really basic types of things. I think from a more long-term perspective, some of the things that we forget is that air pollution works partly through um, inducing oxidation in the body. So anything we can do to keep our cells healthy is a good way to overcome, particularly these short-term exposures. So I know the bushfires didn't feel like a short-term exposure. It really did go on for quite a long time. But in the scheme of comparing air pollution for people who live in Nigeria or India or China and countries like that, um, it really was a short-term exposure. And so we can offset some of that damage by eating a really good rainbow diet, you know, eating all our good healthy vegetables and fruits, um, getting our exercise in when we can now that the air quality has improved and just so, you know, drinking enough water, cutting down sugar, just those simple things that keep us healthy will also help us to repair any damage that's occurred from breathing the air pollution during the bushfire season. Yeah, that's re very reassuring too. One thing I'll add too that people can do at home, I was quite shocked to drive past some um, schools and daycares and things during the smoke time that obviously didn't get the public health message that they should be indoors. I was really quite surprised to be very, see very young children um, playing outdoors in on days when the smoke haze was visible, you know, like it was so smoky that you couldn't see very well. Um, so, you know, if you do have your children in anyone else's care, I think it's worth passing on um, these, you know, basic health messages as well. Yeah, that's a really, really pertinent point because sometimes, like you said, it's hard to find this information. And in the bushfire crisis, the focus was really more on keeping people safe from the bushfires and making sure that people weren't traveling into regions where they were just going to cause harm to themselves or more chaos in the community. And the smoke was really secondary. So just remembering to pass that message on to others. I'll mention as well, with driving, make sure you've got your air conditioner um, set to recycling the air, even air conditioners in the homes, make sure that they're recycling the air within the house and not drawing in more air from outside the car. So that's another tip for um, keeping the levels of circulation 
regulating um, pollution down when you're using air conditioners. Oh, this is all really helpful. Thank you. Do you have anything else that I haven't asked you about that you think is, you know, important or interesting to share? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I could hey. talk for hours on this topic. <laughs> so I just think um, those general healthy living ideas and living in it, one with nature and all of the rest is the way that we're going to also help to overcome, you know, the coming climate crisis because we're really just at the beginning of that and yeah, just getting back to our roots, getting back to nature, reducing our consumption of everything, all of that is like, a, you know, of goods and, and things like that is all going to help to create a healthier atmosphere for all of us. Oh, that's so good. And I guess the only thing I want to end on is just maybe if you could just give us all one more message about how it's really important not to get too stressed because we have talked about <laughs> some, some stressful things. <laughs> Absolutely. The evidence is very clear that stress, especially during pregnancy, is one of the most harmful exposures for a baby. So as much as we've talked about some really scary things, air pollution and dry cover and not enough green space and these things can you know, increase malaria risk and all of these things, it can seem really terrifying. Um, stress is one of the biggest harms to our health both to our unborn baby's health and to our own personal health and children living in a house where your parents are chronically stressed is really not helpful either so i think the main message is these are things to be aware of they're things to try and take small personal actions they're things to advocate strongly to governments for as well but in terms of allowing it to give you a crushing feeling of stress that's really not helpful it's not going to help you make the small personal actions you need and it's not going to help your own health so be aware of them but at the same time just try and do your very best and know that your best is actually good enough and don't get too caught up in the fear and worry we'll all be okay <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's so helpful. And, I, you know, we have listeners all over the world, but in Australia we, um, we do have the Panda Helpline and we have Lifeline, um, Beyond Blue. There's a lot of great resources out there if people are feeling a bit um, overwhelmed by some of the topics that we've covered today. Thank you so much, Duane. That's so useful and helpful. And I hope people can take away some things that they can do in their daily life and, and also not to feel too overwhelmed um, or stressed about it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks. Here at Newborn Mothers, we believe that every family has the right to high quality postpartum care. If you want to join us, learn more at newbornmothers.com. And if you like this podcast, we'd really love you to leave us a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.